Welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today I'm talking to Nadira Goff, production assistant at Slate and our assistant on the Culture Gab Fest. Hey, Nadira. Hey, Dana. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm really, really curious for us to talk about the movie that we're spoiling today, which is uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. It's the first American film from a Dutch filmmaker named Helena Rain, and it is, I guess I would roughly categorize it as kind of an Agatha Christie style teens in a isolated house slasher movie. Is that a fair set up for the genre of bodies, bodies, bodies? I think so. More like a, a sort of Gen Z murder mystery, who's killing everyone in the house type of vibe. Right. One of those things where you isolate everybody away from civilization so that you can pit them against each other and decide who the bad guy is. Before we get started, as I always like to do with spoilers, I just want to ask in general if you liked the movie or not, since this is not a place to review, but to sort of pick apart story details and walk us through the whole thing. Did this movie work for you? I read a lot of stuff that was really divisive about the movie, actually. Some people saying that it was unfair to the Gen Z generation. Some people saying that it was right on. I personally really, really enjoyed this movie. I thought that it was fun while also being genuinely scary at certain times. But I also thought that the commentary on Gen Z was really interesting, and I'm really excited to talk about it. I don't know if you consider yourself a representative of Gen Z or how you feel about generational labels in the first place, but you are roughly the same age as the people in this movie, right? The group of mainly 20-somethings who gather at this not country house, but fancy McMansion. Yeah, I think I'm technically a zillennial, so right on the cusp, but I definitely identify with a lot of their tendencies and reactions to things that happened in this movie. That is going to be a big question that we cover in this podcast is to what extent is this a portrait of a generation or is this just a portrait of some individual and often very annoying <laughs> individuals? So then I can counter that by saying maybe we'll have some good, uh, juicy conversation to come because I really did not like this movie. And then I went after watching it, I went on Rotten Tomatoes and saw that it was at 92%. Almost every critic loves it. And I was very curious to see how it's won over so many people. I don't think that it is objectively terrible. I just think that by the terms that it sets out for itself, to do some things that are funny, interesting ideas for a horror slash comedy movie about this generation, it doesn't necessarily execute all those ideas extremely well. But let's get into, first of all, who these people are who are isolated at the uh, fancy house of the character played by Pete Davidson. Uh, we don't need to run down every character, especially since the movie itself doesn't establish and differentiate most of the characters particularly well, but at least the main few people who are our protagonists. So as the movie begins, I think the very first thing we see is a young couple, two women, making out. <laughs> and these are going to be more or less our protagonists, although we don't quite know whether to trust them throughout the movie. They're played by Amanda Stenberg and Maria Bakalova. And um, they're two young women who seem to have just started dating recently and who are madly in love and all over each other. And they are on the, their way to a weekend at this very fancy spread, a big gated mansion owned by the family of the Pete Davidson character. All right. Do you want to take a little bit from there about who the Pete Davidson character is and the other folks at this weekend party? 
Sure. So Sophie and B arrive at Pete Davidson's house. He plays a character named David. The only thing we really know about him is that he's Sophie's best friend for years. He's dating Emma, who is played by Chase Sweet Wonders. And we honestly don't get much about Emma right off the bat, except that she is dating David. Then there's also Alice, who's played by Rachel Sennett. Now, Alice, we get a lot about. She's a sort of self-obsessed influencer, turned podcaster and she's dating it seems greg who's played by lee pace who is her boyfriend of at that point an undisclosed amount of time and he's much older than everyone else and also very very attractive as we all know lee pace to be and that kind of unsettles david a little bit and then there's jordan who's played by Mahela harold jordan is the only sort of outlier of the group, one who's not coupled up with someone else, not dating anyone. Jordan seems a little rough around the edges when we first meet her. It seems like she's got some things she wants to get off her chest, but won't. And so that's our sort of cast for this slasher film that will be stuck in the house together. And as the young couple arrives at this house party, there's some kind of bad vibes being put out, sort of obscurely bad vibes being put out by everybody who's swimming in the pool and was not expecting them to come. It starts to come out that Sophie seems to be freshly out of rehab, that she has to some extent ghosted her friends and stopped responding to their group text chat, which is why nobody was expecting her at the house party, that nobody knows about her new girlfriend who she's bringing out of the blue. So there's a little bit of a sense that there's a a vibe that's already established that the arriving couple is disturbing. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, 100%. There's a lot of hushed tones and side eyes and just general confusion about what she's doing there and confusion about how to take the fact that she's there with them. So here is where something is established that I think could have been much better um, developed later on that kind of dies out. But there's only two men at this party, right? There's five women, two men, And the two men clearly have this kind of toxic bro energy between the two of them, where they're competing for attention, for kind of alpha primacy. And I wonder if you could talk about how that manifests itself early in the movie. I think this is one of the things that I kept thinking, if only that thread had been developed a little bit better, and that there could have been a little bit more about gendered competition and energy in the later part of the movie. So I think the way everything develops, it just becomes clear sort of early on that David, played by Pete David, Davidson has a complex where he, like you said, wants to be the alpha male. He wants to be the male presence. He doesn't want to feel threatened by other men. It's alluded to that before we meet everyone, there was an altercation between David and a character that we don't get to meet until the very end named Max. He already had an altercation with one other man. And then there's another man who enters the house who's Greg, played by Lee Pace. And it seems that off the bat, David wants to sort of discount everything he's saying. He's very rude to him. He's definitely trying to one-up him. He even confronts him physically at a few separate points. And it's not really stated why or what his history is, but I honestly think we're just meant to see him as a sort of caricature of just a general asshole, you know, like one of those guys who just always has to be the guy. And I think it makes sense if we understand that he's been surrounded by all of these women as his main group of friends for however many years. That is a place, though, that I really feel like the screenwriting falls down. I mean, I realize that it's a horror movie and it's about who's going to get picked off at this house party and that we don't have to know everybody's backstory. But I had so little of a sense. It wasn't even an Agatha Christie, you know, 10 Little Indians level sense of who each individual person was to every other person, right? So we're told that Pete Davidson is the childhood friend of Sophie, the Amanda Stenberg character, 
And that's very briefly set up, but they don't seem to be much more connected or have much more of a history than anybody else. There's characters like Jordan, who we know virtually nothing about. And Emma, right, we know she's an actress, that's it, and maybe an actress of questionable quality. It comes up later, and she's supposed to be self-dramatizing, but they're also self-dramatizing, that they're really not differentiated. I mean, it took me quite a while to figure out who everyone who were not the three biggest stars in the movie were as a character. The couple that comes into the house party, they somewhat form themselves as real characters. So does the Pete Davidson character, but as we'll talk about, he doesn't last that long. I had a hard time finding a protagonist in this movie to want to even be the final girl or final guy. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I understand that it's a social satire, but you still want somebody that you can sort of dig your your teeth into in terms of identification and, you know, following their story. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I feel like I can't really point to other movies right now, but I get this feeling or overall sense that this is becoming a sort of trend in millennial Gen Z sort of films where the moral of the story is just everyone sucks all of the time. <laughs> and I kind of enjoy that. You know, it's kind of fun to just watch all of these characters be messy, but maybe that's also because this is just what I'm used to in terms of the entertainment that people in my generation seek out and the way we communicate with each other. But I do think that Amanda Stenberg, I found her character Sophie really interesting. And so I was sort of rooting for her just because I wanted to get to the bottom of like what her deal was, if that makes any sense. But I would agree with you that there wasn't one character that I was really, really hoping would make it out alive. The movie itself treats everyone as expendable, so you start to think of them as expendable too. Okay, Nadira, now that we've set up this basic cast of unlikable and somewhat undifferentiated characters, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Okay, back to bodies, bodies, bodies. So as you can imagine, at this house full of 20-somethings, everybody is drinking, everybody's doing drugs, everybody's making out in corners. A kind of wild house party is starting to assemble itself. And their first night together, with some of them already drunk and others getting drunk in the course of the game, they decide to play this murder game called Bodies, 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 hence the title. And uh, I wonder if you could describe and um, maybe tell me if you've ever played a game like that. It seemed to me basically like the, the party game Mafia. Yeah, so I actually have played Mafia tons of times with my friends, so I'm very, very familiar with this concept of bodies, bodies, bodies. The one thing that I do want to comment on before I explain the game and before we go further is that at the same time that they're having this party, there is an impending hurricane that has decided to just pour down water and it seems like a very very bad storm there's a whole bunch of wind that's the main reason why they all stay in the house instead of at the nice fancy pool in this McMansion that they're at so when they're in the house they decide to play bodies 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 which is basically a game where there is one designated person as the murderer and everyone else is designated as townspeople or just civilians and all of this is done anonymously so it's either done through slips of paper or taps on the shoulder while everyone's eyes are closed by the game host or game master however you decide to play it so there's one murderer there's a whole bunch of civilians and the whole point of the game is for the murderer to kill people by tapping them on the shoulder or giving them some sort of sign or movement and for the other townspeople after each death once they're discovered they take a break they have a discussion and they all have to decide who they think the murderer is and so that they can evict them or kill them, or whatever the sort of metaphor is for getting the murderer out. So there's a whole bunch of rounds. Each round, the murderer kills someone, the rest of the living people try and figure out who they think the murderer is, and then if they get it right, 
then the game's over. And if they don't, the rounds keep going and the murderer keeps killing people. Right. And so in the first round of this game, the murdered person turns out to be Greg, Lee Pace's character. In the movie's first of many fake outs, he takes a really long time to wake up from his fake death. And we as the viewer, knowing this is going to be a murder movie, think, ah, he must somehow magically be really dead. But as it turns out, he's just messing with them. He's still alive. But the game very quickly turns kind of sour and toxic. In fact, I think we only get through one round of the game before actual scary murder stuff starts to happen. Isn't that right? That's very true. So the first person that they decide to exile after the death that they suspect for killing Greg is David, partially because of the growing hostility that David has shown Greg this entire time, but also partially because David, like I said before, really shows his true assholery in the way that he treats Emma and the things that he says about her while they're playing the game. So that's kind of the first round. And then all of the men are gone at this point. Greg upset by everything that has happened, decides he wants to go upstairs to sleep. David, pissed off that he was killed first, walks away somewhere. But then, like you said, everything goes really, really badly. So the power cuts out, as it does during a hurricane, and the girls begin to look around for supplies. And then that's when they encounter their first real death, which is David, who somehow found his way outside and appears with a slashed throat. Yeah, and I have to say, that was a moment that I felt like, this is going to be scary, (laughs) because Pete Davidson's appearance at that door, you can't quite tell what's going on. He's hurling himself against the glass. He's bleeding. You don't know what happened. I thought, oh, this is going to be a really clever series of people being picked off, especially surprising that Pete Davidson, maybe the biggest star in the movie, is the first one to die, right? Kind of psycho style. I feel like the movie didn't live up to that promise, really, um, and was not very scary. In fact, I remember walking home from the movie just thinking, that's it? I'm just a little slightly jittery for half an hour and then I've forgotten all about it. I don't go to horror movies to be jittery. I want to be deeply terrified. But yes, Pete Davidson's death is scary. And as we'll get to at the end of the movie, it is also, I think, a very clever and maybe the only clever death in the entire movie. But of course, his death throws the house into complete disarray. They can't get anywhere. They can't use any of the phones because the reception is out. It turns out the car battery is dead for the one car that they have at the house. And so after this really frantic and pretty legitimately tense, I think, and frightening scene where they're running around a dark house with, you know, just their phone flashlights trying to figure out why one of their party has suddenly died, um, we enter into the middle section of the movie where they've accepted that they're trapped in the house, right? They know that the killer must be one of them unless someone is somehow lurking in the outskirts of the house and the bodies start to pile up in uh, increasingly inexplicable ways. How about murder number two? (laughs) Do you want to get to that one? So the second death is Greg and what happens is the girls find Greg because they suspect him as David's killer and in an altercation where it becomes very clear during the altercation that at least to me, that Greg had absolutely nothing to do with this and was actually just very confused. B, who is Sophie's girlfriend that she brought to the house, bashes Greg's head in with a kettlebell in what is deemed as self-defense, but I don't know if that would actually hold up in court. And thus Greg becomes the second death. I feel like that scene was where the movie started to go south for me a little bit because I didn't see in B's character who so far in the movie and, and subsequently pretty much in the movie too is really introverted, right? Very unsure of her status among this group of people that she would be the person who would suddenly get a kettlebell and smash this guy's head in. She didn't seem like she was necessarily strong enough to do that. She also seems like one of the smarter ones. (laughs) There's some pretty dumb people at this house party, as we'll get to, and she seems like someone who has a little more forethought to her decisions than a lot of them. So 
that just seemed like a random character choice to me. Also, I really felt for Lee Pace in this scene. And I was sad he was leaving the movie because Lee Pace is fantastic. And his character was one of the most differentiated, if only because he was from a different generation. He seemed to have a different sensibility. Even all of the girls think that he's a vet, as in a, f- a former person in the military, when it turns out that he was actually just a veterinarian. I loved Greg, and I loved Lee Pace, and I was so sad to see him go so early. I feel like a lot of energy leaves the movie, honestly, when those two guys leave the movie. In order for that to have been worth it, like I said up top, there should have been a little bit more of an establishment of, like, let's get the men out of the way first. I mean, I'm all for the idea that it's sort of like the house quickly becomes this all-woman matriarchy of murder, but with Without those two characters having a little bit more time to develop their relationships to each other and to the audience, it was just as if they were, I don't know, dominoes being toppled so that the plot could continue. Right. I guess I would just push back in the sense that I think while I agree just because I really love Pete Davidson and Lee Pace as performers and actors in general, I think that the film was trying to get to the meat of what it was trying to say, I guess, or to get to its thesis. And so after... Greg was killed was when I sort of felt like, okay, now we're getting to whatever the movie's really trying to do. And I was excited to see what that was because I wasn't entirely sure, though I had some idea. But I do think that to me, it seemed like, okay, this is the point where the movie is actually supposed to start ramping up and where these girls are supposed to really start distrusting each other and throwing each other under the bus. Let's talk about the very first woman to die. We know that something really strange is going on when the third person dies, which is Emma, the actress who was the girlfriend of, of Lee Pace's character. After Greg's death, the girls are obviously understandably very shaken. Sophie ends up relapsing and finding cocaine, I believe. But then Sophie also finds some other pills, which she hands to Emma. That's the last time we see Emma. And then as the girls are running around the house doing all the different things they're trying to do, Alice happens upon Emma's prone dead body. Yeah, that is a scary scene, too, actually, just the choreography of it, because what happens is Alice is racing around in the dark, as all of them are, and just falls full length onto this dead body with wide open eyes, which is pretty freaky and scary and also makes you realize this really is going to be kind of an Agatha Christie scenario where anybody could go at any time. I mean, the previous two, there's been a surprise death and there's been a death that was a kind of a retaliation or natural reaction to that. But here comes just another completely unexplained death out of the blue. Should we get to why all these people died (laughs) as we talk about their deaths or are we saving the reveal of Emma's death for as long as the movie saves it? Okay, I think we can at least talk about Emma's death just because to me it was very obvious and I think it actually points to what the film was maybe overall trying to say. So there is a point after Emma's death where someone, I don't remember who, suggests that maybe she just fell. She was found at the bottom of a set of stairs so it's very plausible that she could have just fell down the stairs and her wounds really did look like blunt force trauma but because of their paranoia and because of everything that they had experienced thus far they really believed that someone in the house was out to get them all when in reality it was actually the drugs that Sophie gave Emma that caused her to fall down the stairs if I'm not mistaken. Right. She gives her, I think they say it's Xanax because understandably Emma is so upset about her boyfriend having been sabered to death by a mysterious assailant. And so I guess there's a, there's some kind of critique or commentary in that. You start to see that all of these deaths are building on each other and the hysteria is kind of creating its own momentum. All right, let's take another break here for another word from our sponsor and then we'll get back to bodies, bodies, bodies. 
All right. So resuming our discussion, after Emma, the first woman to die, is taken out by what turns out to be a non-murder, a simple fall down the stairs, there there will only be four women left in the house. So now we have Sophie and B, the couple who crashed the party, right? Jordan, the friend whose motives we don't really understand, but who seems to have a lot of hostility towards Sophie, and we start to figure out why here toward the end of the movie. And Alice, who I will say, I think, played by Rachel Sinat, is my favorite character in the movie. Because this social stereotype we've been talking about, the kind of entitled, whiny Generation Z person, is beautifully embodied by Alice, and she also gets some of the best lines. I guess she is the most overtly dumb person at the party, right? But who's completely convinced that she's not dumb. And I have to say that even as someone who is two generations removed from this generation, I really felt the cutting commentary on her podcast (laughs) and how pathetic it was seen to be somebody who podcasts. In fact, I was thinking about the fact that in pop culture, podcasting is almost always associated with sort of boring, whiny (laughs) Gen Z types. And so as somebody who makes in part my living from podcasting, you know, that kind of hit home. But she's really, really good at that sort of um, self-exposure and silliness. I don't know if you saw the movie Shiva Baby from last year, I think it was, or a couple years ago. But it's a great comic performance from Rachel Sinat. And I think she could have done even more if she'd been given a little more screen time and a little bit better writing. I haven't seen Shiva Baby, but after this movie, I feel the need to track down everything that Rachel Sennett has ever been in and ever done. Like you said, she just absolutely nails it. I think it's really hard to nail this because I think that Gen Zers, especially of the sort of social media influencer or podcaster type, are just often openly maligned in society. And so to sort of impart this really earnest, grounded well-meaningness to the character, but also to still play her up as a heightened, extremely dumb, extremely self-obsessed character is a really tricky thing to do. It rides a really fine line, and I think that Rachel Sennett just played Alice to the best of her ability. Yeah, she's kind of lovable in her idiocy, you know? And and she also is just a clear type. She's someone who's memorable. She has her own style. She wears those glow sticks around her neck. I mean, in a period of the movie when I was sort of thinking like, what characteristic is each of these women supposed to have again? She was someone who always had a kind of a defined character and personality. And I think important to note, she's the one friend out of everyone who no one really has anything bad to say about her, or at least that they've been saying behind her back. You know, they might, besides disliking her podcast there's not really any sort of very personal deep lobs at her when they all start tearing each other apart and I think that that has you know a lot to say about that sort of type and that character and what her energy is and how lovable she is despite all of her misgivings yeah completely agree yay Rachel Sinat all right we have two more deaths to get through in this movie and I just want to quickly count down how we lose our last two victims then we'll take another break and then we'll get to the movie's ending which I actually think although in general I was disappointed is its best part so how do our last two women bite the dust in all of this confusion after Emma's death they excommunicate B from the house in suspecting B so they throw her outside into the hurricane then um, she finds her way back in While she was outside, she sees that Jordan had a gun. She confronts Jordan, who then begins to argue with all of the girls about, as we were saying, all of their sort of previous trauma. Jordan ends up pulling out the gun. She shoots Alice in the leg at first just because of the argument that they're having. But then there becomes a wrestle for the gun, and then Alice ends up being shot by the gun. Then a very, very shaken, very fraught Jordan runs through the house with the gun, 
the remaining girls, B and Sophie, try to get it away from her, try to convince her to put it down. She won't. B tackles Jordan on the second floor of the house, and Jordan ends up getting thrown over the second floor banister and falling onto a table full of like crushed beer cans and glass to her death. And then it's just the two girls that we started with, Sophie and B, left in the house. I think it's also worth noting that Jordan's last words after she has just crashed through a table full of bottles are that B should check Sophie's texts because, according to Jordan, she has been cheating on her with Jordan. And that becomes important in the very last moment of the movie. All right. Well, we're going to take one more break. Then we will get to the denouement that sort of explains in one fell swoop how all the murders happened. If you enjoy Slate spoiler specials, the best way to support this show is by joining Slate Plus, which is Slate's membership program. When you are a Slate Plus member, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts. You get unlimited reading throughout the Slate website. That's access to every article and advice column and podcast we publish. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member. And you get bonus segments or bonus episodes on some shows, including Slow Burn, The Political Gab Fest, and uh, my other recurring show on Slate, The Culture Gab Fest. Best of all, when you are a Slate Plus member, you are supporting our podcast. This show and this site would not be possible without your support, and Slate Plus helps keep it all going. To join today, go to slate.com slash spoiler plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash spoiler plus. All right, so let's get to the very ending of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. We've now got two final girls. The couple who originally arrived at the house are the only ones to have survived. And uh, after this long, frantic night of racing around a dark house, it's finally morning, so they can see again. And do you want to explain what happens out by the pool on this last morning with these two bloodstained women? B and Sophie are at the pool. B is trying to get Sophie's phone to check the texts that Jordan was mentioning. They wrestle for the phone. As they wrestle in the mud by the pool edge, they end up picking up David's phone. There's a really great scene where B walks over to David's prone body and lifts his eyes to unlock through facial ID his cell phone. And once they unlock his phone, they see that David's death was actually due to an accident that he caused himself when he was making a TikTok and was trying to recreate a move that Greg did earlier where he used a sword to pop the cork on a champagne bottle. And while he was trying to attempt this move that he could not do, he accidentally slit his own throat with said sword. So there was never a murderer in the house. No one was out to get anyone ever. It was just all started by David and his one accident all for a TikTok. I mean, even though in general, I couldn't sort of wait for this movie to be over and did not find it either funny or scary enough to kind of justify its existence. The ending was so satisfyingly mean <laughs> and um, and and so bleak that I think it kind of made it worthwhile. I mean, just the idea that, you know, he was trying to narcissistically top the other guy's champagne sword trick in a TikTok and that led to this whole chain of murders, I think is a stronger indictment of Generation's narcissism than almost any of the other scenes trying to make that point. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the thing about Gen Z from my personal experience is that we know how to make fun of each other. We know how to laugh at each other because not only does the sort of social media economy require it, but we've had to do it because everyone else does it all of the time as well. And so it was cruel. And I really enjoyed that, even though it's a little odd for me to say that. But I completely agree. I mean, I think the whole sort of SART, no exit, you know, we are each other's torturers thing is just very applicable and very real and it's taken a lot of turns and I really like the way it shows up here in the sense that everyone was sort of 
so self-obsessed or so worried about their own trauma or past or how they're coming off that they couldn't take the time to realize that there was never actually any threat in the first place. But I really liked all of the moments where it was severely biting and really, really cruel. Yeah, if that level of plotting and that precision of detail had existed throughout the whole movie and with and it had explained every death, I think I would have found it more satisfying. To me, it seemed like there was a lot of jittery chaos leading up to that moment and not all of it rose to that standard. But I can see how this movie could be a fun summer watch, even if it does kind of disappear from your brain pretty quickly after. All right. Well, Nadira, you've semi-convinced me. Instead of me bringing you over to the side of thinking bodies, bodies, bodies was kind of a chaotic, dull mess, you've kind of convinced me that it was a chaotic, yet funny and entertaining mess. And I will concede that if a movie can turn me off for nearly its entire running time, but then impress me with its ending, you know, it's got something going on. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I really did enjoy this movie. But I will take this sort of praise with a grain of salt as this movie has warned me to do. All right. Well, Nadira, thank you for joining me for this spoiler. I hope you'll come on again soon and spoil another movie. Oh, of course. Anytime. And thank you to all of you for listening. Our producer today was Christy Taiwo Macanjola. The vice president of Slate Audio is Alicia Montgomery. For Nadira Goff, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.